together into deep discipleship. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 76, Kingdom Dwellers, Courageous Curiosity. Well, hi, everyone. Great to be back with you this week. If you haven't signed up for the Soil and Roots email newsletter, you can do that at any time. We'd love to have you join. Just head over to soilandroots.org, and you can also pick up a free short ebook that explores the concept of deep discipleship, which we talk about all the time here. Also, thanks to all of you who financially support Soil and Roots. We're so glad you're with us. We're able to develop and grow our community, encourage one another in our spiritual journey, and help to form us into people of depth because of your generosity. If you're interested in learning more about or forming a greenhouse, that's a small group of people who journey together to become more like Jesus, you can find more information on the site or just email us at fish at soilandroots.org. If you do recommend Soil and Roots and the podcast to friends, feel free to remind them that it's best started back at episode one. The podcast is designed as a slow but increasingly complex journey into deep discipleship. If you've listened to the podcast or read the blog for any length of time, you know we're all here wrestling with the great omission. The fact that modern Christianity is struggling to make disciples, people who spend their lives apprenticing with Jesus to become more like him from the inside out. Spiritual formation is about the forming of our character, though that's not what many of our institutional churches are focused on. They may be focused on making converts, doctrinal conformity, service, social justice, or preserving tradition. Those things all have their place, but individual character formation does require a much more personalized approach to Christianity than, frankly, what many of us experience. And in our current era, we face three primary obstacles, the discipleship dilemma, the formation gap, and the forgotten kingdom. If we really want to simplify those things, we can boil those challenges down to just three words, story, community, and purpose. What is the grand story of the Bible? And how is Jesus writing our stories into his? If our journey to become more like Jesus means we also know our hearts better, How exactly do we do that? Do we have access to or are we part of specific communities designed to form our hearts, our character? If spiritual formation is a journey best taken together, are we doing that? And are we clear why Jesus came and why we're here? What is our purpose? So in season two, we focused on story. Season three was all about community. And now in season four, we're exploring purpose. So far, we've explored this forgotten kingdom from three angles. First, we looked at various definitions about the kingdom of God. Then we took a look at how our unconscious or conscious assumptions about the end times impact our ideas and definitions about the kingdom. That was interesting. And then we asked ourselves a difficult question. When we pray thy kingdom come, do we really want it to come? Perhaps the reason the kingdom has been forgotten or reduced in our minds is not because it's all that complicated, but because we may not want to bear the costs of the coming kingdom. Of the three primary problems, 
the Forgotten Kingdom, we've discovered, is the trickiest, primarily because modern Christianity has a very difficult time in coming to a consensus on what it actually is. By example, last episode, Kyle shared the results of a straw poll he conducted with his friends. He asked them to text him their definitions of the kingdom, and he received at least four different groups of responses. Some said that the kingdom of God simply means heaven. Others said it's the spiritual, invisible life of a Christian. A few said that it's basically general obedience to the Bible, and then two said that it's God's rule, his reign over everything. Those are four pretty different assumptions about the kingdom. Why does it matter? Because our unconscious ideas about the kingdom play a key role in defining our ideas about our purpose. And our ideas of purpose play a key role in defining who we're actually becoming. Our view of the kingdom not only influences our ideas about our purpose, but also Jesus' purpose. Why did he come to earth? Did he come to save us from creation? Or did he come to save all of his creation? Is the point to get to heaven? or to get heaven into us? And what role does the church have in this mission? We've explored seven characteristics of the kingdom in light of the confusion that currently reigns in our era. Number one, the kingdom arrived with the arrival of the king. Number two, the king is also the key. Number three, the kingdom is growing. Number four, it's cosmic. Number five, it's both spiritual and physical, not just one or the other. Number six, the kingdom is already here, but at the same time, it's not yet. And number seven, the kingdom of light is greater than the kingdom of darkness, something that's sometimes hard to accept. Those characteristics have led us to resonate with Jeremy Treat's definition of the kingdom. He said it's God's reign through God's people over God's place. And Dallas Willard described it this way, quote, The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will, where what God wants done is done. It is like God from everlasting to everlasting. The planet Earth and its immediate surroundings seem to be the only place in creation where God permits his will not to be done. Therefore we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, and hope for the time when that kingdom will be completely fulfilled even here on earth, when in fact it is already present and available to those who seek it with their hearts." End quote. So, while we have a few starter definitions, we recognize the ideas of the kingdom are far from settled in modern Christianity. But for the next batch of episodes, we're going to pivot to a fascinating exploration of what it means to be a kingdom dweller. What sort of qualities mark a person living in this kingdom? However, being that this is soil and roots, we aren't going to explore living in the kingdom in some traditional ways. Why in the world would we take the well-trod path? We're all about digging underneath the surface here, exploring the hidden ideas that form us and the church and our culture, and perhaps causing a few heated family discussions in the process. That would be tempting to talk about life in the kingdom based on the Great Commission. If a disciple is someone who obeys all that Jesus commands, we could simply list all of the things Jesus commanded and talk about them. Now, the good news is there's lots of books that have already done that. John Piper wrote one appropriately titled, All That Jesus Commanded, and it's a helpful study of Jesus' red-letter instructions. However, we could make the argument that the Great Commission doesn't include just what Jesus said during his time on earth, but instead the entirety of the Bible. We could also look at other lists of characteristics or qualities of kingdom dwellers in the Bible, we could look at the Beatitudes, the fruits of the Spirit, even the gifts of the Spirit. 
Again, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you'll find countless books and podcasts and sermons and articles and essays about those lists, and they're all very well worth examining. However, I stumbled across a quote by Richard Foster recently, and it has really stuck with me. Here's what he said. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people, end quote. We don't need more intelligence or more gifts. We need depth. It's not that the red letters of Jesus aren't deep. Good heavens, they are. But I fear we've read them and heard them so many times they've lost some of their luster and their meaning. Besides, we can read off the list of all the things Jesus commanded and then just attempt to do them, though that may boil down Christianity to a just-do-it religion. But didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? The sense is that if we're becoming people of depth, people of profound love and peace, contentment and freedom, obedience to all that Jesus commanded may somehow take care of itself. For all the efforts to train people on apologetics and evangelism, both of which are great, perhaps we're missing a more fundamental truth. It may not be as much about scripts or four laws or two questions or simple pictures. It may be more about us, our hearts, who we are becoming. Shockingly, at least to me, Dallas Willard once wrote, quote, We want disciples, and if you are intent on making disciples and keeping on that track, evangelism will take care of itself. Meaning that if we are intentionally being spiritually formed, we'll find ourselves quite naturally sharing about Jesus and the kingdom in a myriad of ways. Doesn't that seem somewhat odd in a Christian culture that's intent on systems, training programs, and tactics? Here we are again, back in the realm of what we truly love, what we desire, and what unconscious ideas influence those desires. We're back again at Soil and Roots. So we're going to do some excavating here, and we're going to try to peer into the biblical narrative and into our own hearts to unearth some qualities of a kingdom dweller that may not be so apparent on the surface. For the next several weeks, I'm going to pause my habit of naming each episode after sometimes obscure cultural references. Episodes in this little mini-series will be named Kingdom Dwellers, followed by whatever characteristic we happen to be exploring. Today, we're going to start by excavating a characteristic of a kingdom dweller that we've mentioned on and off before. It's a quality of being that, in our fast-paced, instant information age, we sometimes forget, along with the kingdom itself. One of the most pivotal qualities of a kingdom dweller is courageous curiosity. The desire, the passion, the habit of asking heart-level questions of God, of others, and even of ourselves. As we're about to discover... If we want to better embody qualities such as love and kindness, gentleness, self-control, humility, we often need to start with curiosity. If our journey of spiritual formation is focused on becoming more like Jesus, we might ask ourselves this question. Is Jesus curious? Is God curious? How can God be curious if he's omniscient? Well, one thing's for sure, God asks a lot of questions. Perhaps the most poignant question in the Bible is his first recorded one, asked of Adam and Eve. They took the fruit from the wrong tree, in effect declaring their autonomy from God, and then they hid, and God simply asked them, where are you? Surely he knew where they were, 
So why did God ask a question to which he already knew the answer? Trevor Hudson explored some of God's questions and listed several from both Testaments in addition to where are you. If we listen carefully, we quickly realize God isn't asking the question to get the right answer. In most cases, the answer is obvious. There's something much more profound going on here when God asks questions. So I'll read a few of these questions and see if you can identify the story from which the question comes. Where is your brother? And that's God asking Cain where Abel was after Cain murdered him. What is that in your hand? It's a somewhat obvious question considering Moses is holding a staff in his hand. What is your name? God asking of Jacob right before he changed his name. What are you doing here? God asking Elijah right after Elijah fled in fear from Jezebel. What are you looking for? It's a question of Jesus that he asked some of his early followers. Who do you say that I am? Jesus again asking his disciples. Do you want to get well? Jesus asking a man who'd been sick for 38 years. Again, probably an obvious question to us. Why are you crying? Jesus asking of Mary Magdalene after his resurrection. Do you understand what I have done for you? Jesus again asking his disciples after he just washed their feet. If God already knows everything, why does he habitually engage in asking questions, especially questions that seem obvious or elementary? Trevor Hudson proposes three reasons. Quote, to begin with, God wants to enter into a conversational relationship with each of us. One way in which God shows this deep desire is by asking questions. They are the same questions that God asked the people of God throughout the Bible. When we start hearing them as addressed to us, we receive a glimpse into those things that God wants to talk about with us. Our answers draw us into a relationship of deeper sharing and intimacy with God. Second, God gives greater dignity to us by allowing us to wrestle with the questions rather than simply giving us the answers. And third, a question has greater power to transform us than a straightforward answer, especially when it comes from God who knows exactly what questions to ask, end quote. I think Hudson hits on something very important here. God's curiosity, if we can even call it that, invites us into a deeper relationship, gives us dignity by allowing us to wrestle rather than simply being told what to do, and provides greater power to transform us. So being curious is not really about asking a question to get the correct answer. It's about relationship, dignity, power, freedom. It's about inviting someone, maybe even ourselves, into a deeper reality, a deeper understanding, a deeper connectedness. Do you know how many questions Jesus asked in the Gospels? I didn't. But a little Google search unveiled the answer. So take a second, make a mental guess. How many questions did Jesus ask in the gospel? Uh, in the four gospels, Jesus has recorded asking a question 307 times. The biblical narrative displays a God who is consistently and persistently asking questions, not simply to receive a simple answer, but rather to invite us into a deeper experience with him and with others. I'm not entirely sure courageous curiosity is something we'd normally envision as a characteristic of a deep disciple. I'm not even sure we're trained or encouraged or given permission to ask probing questions. At least that's not the way my education worked growing up. I listened to a lecture, read a textbook, memorized information, and spat it back out on a multiple choice test a few days later. 
I had a few classes where we were asked to write a thoughtful essay or attempt to distill what we had learned, but overall, the point wasn't to learn how to ask creative questions. It was to take in information assumed as fact and then be able to repeat it back when asked. Didn't we hear somewhere that curiosity killed the cat? You remember the cartoon Curious George. We loved watching George's monkey antics, but let's face it, his curiosity normally led him into trouble, from which he had to be rescued over and over again. Well, how about our normal interactions with friends or folks or people at church? Hey, how's it going? It's great. How's the family? Yeah, wonderful. We're just praising the Lord. If by chance we encounter someone who answers, you know, I've really been struggling this week to get a sense of God's presence. Or, I just can't figure this prayer thing out. I'm not even sure what to pray for anymore. If we got that sort of response, we may not be sure how to go forward. Let's be honest, we rarely ask polite social questions expecting to get some sort of real response. I remember sitting in 10th grade history class. We were studying world religions and happened to be discussing Christianity. Our teacher, whose name was ironically Mr. Cross, asked the class, how many times a day is a Christian supposed to pray? My hand shot up because I was sure to get this one right. So he called on me and I responded, we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Mr. Cross laughed, he made a joke, and informed the class that Christians are supposed to pray three times a day. I wanted to ask a follow-up question and bring up the Apostle Paul, but he had already moved on. This is sometimes what our Christian experience feels like. Take the information our pastors, our teachers, or professors give us, accept it, and move on. Earlier this year, I heard a sermon in church where the pastor compared God to Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid, quoted him. I say, you do, no questions. Is that how we're supposed to relate to God? God says we do no questions? I wonder what Job or Moses, David, Jeremiah, or the disciples would say about that impression of God. It's one of the most unfortunate and disappointing sermons I've ever heard. Think about the underlying ideas of that type of relationship. It's not a relationship based on intimacy or mutual communication, depth, love, or a passion to get to know one another. It's authoritarian, legalistic, transactional. It removes dignity from the equation, and it kills courageous curiosity. We aren't allowed to ask why or how or what. We're just to obey without thinking. Is that the type of father anyone wants? Good heavens, Abraham negotiated with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses complained his way to getting some help from his brother Aaron. When the angel told Mary she was going to give birth to God, she had the bold courage to ask, so how is that going to happen? It seems that God appreciates, honors, values, wants, and responds to our curiosity because it's a pathway to a deeper relationship. I don't think it really works like I say you do. No questions. At least in my experience so far, I actually run into precious few truly curious people. They aren't curious about God or others or even themselves. We just do. It's not that people aren't polite. It's just that not too many people I've encountered are all that interested in depth. The thing that Richard Foster said is most desperately needed. If God himself consistently and lovingly asks probing, sometimes challenging questions in order to deepen our relationship with him, to reveal things about himself and us, why would we not pattern our trusted relationships after that same habit? Pastor Rich Velotis explored this in one of his books, primarily about our lack of desire to ask curious questions about ourselves. 
He suggested we consciously or unconsciously resist and suppress our curiosity because, one, we fear it might lead to despair, either by what we learn about God or others or even about ourselves. Two, we're just really busy. We purposely keep ourselves preoccupied to avoid moments of curiosity. And three, compartmentalization. Velotis writes, quote, compartmentalization in this context refers to a kind of splitting of ourselves in which we offer some parts of our lives to God but deny the rest. This insidious practice of splitting refers to the subconscious habit of disconnecting aspects of ourselves, end quote. In short, we just ignore or reject parts about ourselves or those close to us with which we just don't want to engage. He goes on, quote, like a child hiding a broken figurine from his mother for fear of judgment, we hide broken parts of ourselves from others, and more importantly from ourselves, in an attempt to deliver us from judgment, end quote. In a marriage, this may look like a husband hiding his internet habits from his wife, or the wife's reluctance to confess her deep insecurities to her husband. In many marriages, a short list of things we just don't talk about anymore tends to grow over time to the point that down the road, there just isn't much left to talk about. Look, curiosity is inherently risky. By asking deeper questions of God, ourselves, and others, we may well find some beautiful, hidden, wonderful riches, but we also may find some hurt, some harm, some sin. It may compel us to confront some things about ourselves or those close to us that, if we're honest, we'd rather just leave alone. Being courageously curious is really about extending an invitation to open our hearts and be vulnerable, sometimes uncomfortably so, but to deepen our experience and to love more freely. So what might courageous curiosity look like across our three relationships with God, others, and ourselves? So on the Roots is a big fan of greenhouses. These are small groups of four to 12 people who meet consistently for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus. We practice four different, what we call, rhythms, one of which is called soul care. It's based on some ancient spiritual disciplines, but was extremely popular a few hundred years ago in America during the birth and rise of the Methodist Church. When we meet, we simply ask ourselves this question, how's our friendship with Jesus been this week? Or how are things with your soul? It's an open-ended, curious question that invites anyone in the group to share how they're being formed more like Jesus. When we first started meeting, it took a few weeks for everyone to feel comfortable answering such a vulnerable question. But now it's one of our favorite times. Stories are shared, love is extended, connections are strengthened, prayers are offered, laughter breaks out, communities deepened. No one's obligated to respond, and sometimes we just run out of time. But it's an intentional discipline of cultivating curiosity. And that's just one example of practicing curiosity in a group. What about curiosity with God? Well, if you grew up with a pastor like the one who preached, God said it, just do it, no questions, you may not have much of a context for asking God curious questions. You may assume you don't have that privilege. Hopefully that wasn't your experience. I'll share something I've started doing a lot as I read the Bible. I've begun asking curious questions about the text. Why are there two creation accounts? Why is Abraham affirmed as having obeyed the law when the law hadn't been given yet? Why are so few details provided in so many biblical stories? What did Jesus write in the dirt with his finger? What is Mark's fascination with the word immediately, which he uses all the time in his gospel? What exactly was the star that rested over Jesus' house? 
Matthew tells us that other dead bodies were raised after Jesus' crucifixion, and they appeared to people in Jerusalem. That's it? We get two verses on that? I've become more comfortable asking God questions in my prayer time. Sometimes I feel like I'm five years old again, plaguing my parents with the question, why, every five minutes. I know, I know, Job never got an answer to his why questions, but he was certainly allowed to ask them. And lots of people do get concrete answers to their questions. How about curiosity about others? Well, this one can be tough. It's one thing to be curious about God. Although God certainly isn't safe, we know he's good. We know he can be trusted, even when our hearts have a hard time embracing it. But people? That's another story. If the purpose of being courageously curious is to help each other uncover the hidden ideas that form us, and we know that journey may embody some uncomfortable moments, how do we begin to develop the habit of asking curious questions in the proper context? Well, that's the first point. Not every person or every conversation is primed for courageous curiosity. We need to practice wisdom and discernment. But if we're going to grow to become more like Jesus, we should trust the Holy Spirit to prompt us if he desires us to love someone well by asking curious questions. I seriously doubt we're overdoing this habit. My suspicion is many of us are leaving opportunities to deepen our love for one another on the table because of our own fears, busyness, or just our egos. Maybe it's just time. We might start by asking permission. If we're having coffee or chatting after church with someone. We might just ask, you mind if I ask you a curious question? We may already know someone is struggling. They may be sick or having suffered a relationship split. If we make the normal inquiry, how are things going? The person will probably give the socially acceptable response, such as, I'm hanging in there, or I'm good, thanks. That's why we sometimes need to get creative with our questions. Hey, I know you've been suffering from this illness. Would you mind sharing with me what a good day looks like and what a bad day looks like? That's a much more intentional, specific question rather than, how are you feeling? As Trevor Hudson wrote, we are inviting someone into a deeper relationship by asking them to share more than the standard fare. They may not choose to, that's fine. But most of the time, the more intentional and specific the question, the more vulnerable the conversation. Practice it on your spouse, your kids, your best friend. Next time you start to ask, how's your day going? Try something like, you know, I noticed you sighed when you walked in the door. Would you mind sharing with me what made you sigh? Of course, there is a prerequisite for intentionally becoming more courageously curious. We need to legitimately care about the people we're engaging. We need to pay careful attention to what they say, their body language, their tone, their responses. We need to listen. Another characteristic of a deep disciple that we'll be exploring here soon. Well, how about being curious with ourselves? We've explored the discipleship dilemma in Heartview quite a bit here. To become more like Jesus, we deepen our understanding of our hearts and the ideas and desires that power us. Inherent in knowing ourselves, obviously, is curiosity. But it can be hard to come by. Rich Velotis noted that theologian Ronald Rollheiser warned, quote, The air we breathe today is generally not conducive to interiority and depth, end quote. Velotis went on, We live on the tip of the iceberg, and for various reasons. Many of our days are strategically and subconsciously constructed to avoid looking beneath the surface. We often belong to church communities that reinforce a lack of introspection. We use God to run from God, and we use God to run from ourselves. It's so easy to do this, end quote. Look, as someone who's practicing becoming more courageously curious, 
not going to sugarcoat it, can be difficult. The Lotus noted that Christians want desperately to be known as people formed after God, and yet we've often been more formed by people, some in good ways and some in harmful ways. He notes three areas worth exploring from our past. Patterns, trauma, and scripts. Which thought and behavioral patterns are being formed by God and which are leftovers from other people? What sort of scripts run through our minds and our words that reflect Jesus and which reflect a parent, a sibling, or a formative adult who may or may not have resonated with God? Asking ourselves questions about our patterns, trauma, and scripts does take a lot of courage, but it's often a pathway to healing and to freedom. So yes, being courageously curious about God, others, and ourselves is not usually easy. Sometimes it can be painful. However, it yields tremendous blessings and benefits. If it didn't, Jesus wouldn't have asked 307 questions in the Gospels. So perhaps we might try to practice it just once this week, with God or with a close friend, or with ourselves. Albert Einstein, of all people, said, The important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. And to sum up, Eleanor Roosevelt said, I think at a child's birth, if a mother could ask a fairy godmother to endow it with the most useful gift, that gift should be curiosity. Well, perhaps God does endow each one of us with such a gift, and maybe we just misplaced it for a while. Thanks for listening. For more information on soil and roots and greenhouses, and to join our email list, just check us out at soilandroots.org. Feel free to email us at fish at soilandroots.org. And we'll see you next time.